Well, I guess that paybacks are a witch. I'm Jenny, and my home group is the 9:45 Tuesday morning coffee break in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. My, um, I wish I could say serenity date, but I still throw a few lamps across the room a couple of times. Uh, my Al-Anon birthday is September of 1974. I'd like to thank the committee for giving me the great honor, I am a crier, of um, being here and doing something that I love, which is sharing the love and carrying the message of this wonderful program that gave me a new life. I'm going to keep how it was very short because there's been so much life in between. Okay. Um, let's see, I was born in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and right now, if you all don't mind, please indulge me a moment. I would like to say hello to a couple of people. Quiero decirle bienvenidas a todas mis hermanas de San Juan, Puerto Rico. Um, let's see, and uh, I go back to about 1970 or so. Uh, my story will start there because I was born somewhere, was raised somewhere, and here I am. Um, so in 1970, I had been uh, not fired, but flunked out of Eastern Airline training. I wanted to be a stewardess, as, as we were called then, a flight attendant, as we're called today. And I had been selected by Eastern to go down to Miami, 500 deer run, and train with them. Well, about eight weeks into the 12-week training, I was still 10 pounds overweight, which is probably a million pounds lighter than I am today. <laughs> And um, these uh, two wonderful-looking, perfect women in uniform came up to my room, and they said that I needed to come down to the office and to bring my uniforms. I knew that that couldn't be good. And um, they put me on a scale, which you were allowed to do then, and I was 10 pounds overweight to their horror, and literally within 10 minutes I was back on the plane and back home to the Bronx because I wasn't perfect. And back in the Bronx were those people that I left that I said, I don't care if I never see you guys again, because I was going to keep going from training and never come back to the Bronx and that dysfunctional family, uh, which I know now were dysfunctional them, they were just normal. So anyway, I come back to the Bronx, and I need to get a job, and I find a job with the New York City Police Department training the uh, police officers to speak Spanish for better relationships in the neighborhood. So I go to training. I am 20 years old, and I come back that first day of training, and I started to call the roll call, and I went down the list, and there, we'll call him the good sergeant, and um, I get to the name of the good sergeant. Nothing happens. And I went down the list and then went back and I said the good sergeant. And out from the hallway came this voice, a brogue. Irish, it was good. My juices were flowing already, and I didn't know what it was. <laughs> so I listened to that voice as it came through the wall, and I listened to it. He was whistling as he was right straight in my vision, you know, right under the arch of the door. There was the most gorgeous, unbelievable human being, most beautiful specimen of a man that I had ever laid eyes on. Okay. 
And he walked towards me. He did the John Wayne thing, you know, for those that are old enough. Came down, took that hand and kissed it and said, a person's an accountant for a missy. Well, once I got myself up off the floor, it took me two seconds to plan that their wedding. Needless to say, four months later in September, we walked down the aisle. He was still limping from an accident he had had. Okay. So anyway, here we are. We're married now. I am uh, 20 years old. He is 37 years old. He thinks he struck gold. I think I, he struck gold myself. Um, so we're here we are, home sweet home. I knew nothing about being a wife except what I had picked up from my aunts and and stuff, and he knew nothing about being a husband. The only thing I knew about housekeeping and such was the Donna Reed show. Remember that? <laughs> I watched it, but he never did. Okay, so here we are. He's coming home, home sweet home. Actually, I remember the invite should have read, "You're cordially invited to a train wreck," because this is where it started. So first of all, he got upset because I couldn't make a drink. I didn't know anything about martinis or anything like that. But I learned very quick, okay? I got a blender, by the way, for my one of my wedding gifts. I learned real quick that you may mix a martini, you may shake a martini, but you can't put a martini in the blender. Okay? The little green olive makes it look pukey green. So soon enough, he started staying out in the bars, okay, and um, he had a little bit of sobriety that went by the wayside real quick from the accident he had before we got married. And anyway, so he'd stay out on the bar, in the bars, and I would call the bars, and you could do this a few times, and you call the bar to see if your cop is there, okay? So you, and the call goes like this, hello, is the good sergeant there? Let me check. Good sergeant, are you here? No, I left 10 minutes ago. No, I'm sorry, he left 10 minutes ago. Okay. So about three hours later, when he had made the rounds to all the other bars, which, by the way, were all over the police, around the police station, because these were all cops that retired but still wanted to be in, you know, in the action. So they lived, they had these bars around the police station, they had beds in the back, so if these guys had like an all-nighter, they would go in the back, sleep it off, and then go back to work. And and that's all I knew that went on there. I didn't want to know about anything else. So anyway, about a year into our marriage, I am big with child, just Puerto Rican women, two months pregnant, we look like we're ready to deliver. Right? Verdad? <laughs> right? Okay. So we had just come back from dinner. He had had two drinks. He picked me up a little late. So we were on our way home, and we're crossing over this four-lane boulevard to get to the other side to catch a gypsy cab. So he breaks away from me, and he jumps in the middle of the street and puts up his hand to stop this cab coming towards us. Well, okay, the cab came to a screeching halt, and out of this cab comes the biggest loudest gentleman I had ever seen in my life, maybe a quarterback for the Jets. He was wailing a bat back and forth, and I jump in between the cap and the guy and my husband with the belly out to here, and I'm yelling, please don't hurt him, I'm trying to get him home. 
So the gentleman says, just get him home before the fool gets you both killed. I cannot tell you what happened from that moment to the moment I got him home. We were in a cab. I tried to wake him up. I couldn't wake him up. I had to get the doorman to come and help me upstairs with him. I don't remember paying the cab. So we get upstairs, and I remember going into his pocket, taking out all the money and giving it to this doorman. I was, I was hysterically crying. I was embarrassed, and I just wanted him to get out of there. So I know I must have given him his whole paycheck because the guy liked me a lot after that. So that night I learned two very important lessons. One was about blackout drinking. He did not even remember picking me up. The next one was fun. That was how to roll a drunk. Okay. So he would come home drunk, and I would take all the money out, and the next morning when he'd say, what happened to my money? I'd say, I don't know. Beats me. I wasn't there. So, <laughs> so this continued back and forth. He uh, continued to drink, not the abuse, the verbal abuse. I have to say the good sergeant never laid a hand on me. Um, but the abuse, you know that old little thing when we were growing up that says sticks and bones may break my bones, but words would never hurt me? You know that's not true, okay? I started, the verbal abuse started to wear me down. So one night, I remember getting a knock at the door about 10 o'clock, and I look out the door, and the little peephole, and there's my knight in shining armor, and there was one of his men in uniform holding him up against the wall. He had been mugged on the subway. He was all bloody. So we bring him in, and he put him into bed for me and, you know, just said, bye, ma'am, and that was it. And it was okay for about a month or so. And about a month later, again about 10 o'clock, I get the top, 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 and I'm going through the house to see where the noise is coming from. And I get all the way to the end of the apartment. In New York, there were railroad apartments, okay, room after room after room. Get to the back, and there's the good sergeant. He's on the fire escape. We live on the seventh floor. Anytime the good sergeant lost his keys, he would go up the fire escape for some reason. Well, this night, apparently he had had a little issue. He got off the elevator first, got off on the wrong floor, then went up the the fire escape trying to escape whatever was after him. Okay, so he comes in. He, I put him to bed, take the gun apart like a new, uh, a good wife did, put everything in the separate compartments. Uh, I put him to bed, and two minutes later I get a knock on the door. It's that knock that you know no matter where you are, it's the police. Yeah. So um, I open the door, and there's this nice cop again, and he's got an irate neighbor with him. Apparently the good sergeant had gotten off on the wrong floor, tried to go into the wrong apartment, gun in hand, because now he thought somebody had broken into the apartment. So uh, this gentleman was yelling colorful metaphors, and I had heard colorful metaphors, but not like these, okay? So we put the sergeant to bed, and the um, police officer is about to leave, and he says, ma'am, the sergeant has to call the office in the morning. We have a situation. And then he says, ma'am, I think the Sarge has a drinking problem. I said, no kidding, Sherlock. You know? <laughs> so the next morning, he gets up about uh, 5.30 in the morning due to my practically vacuuming over his head. 
and he gets up and I give him, you know, what happened. I inform him and bring him up to date. You know, it's something very funny. When the alcoholic drinks, he gets a blackout that he doesn't remember a thing. With us, Al-Anon gives us total recall. <laughs> we could go back to the first drink you had, when you had it, what you were wearing, and who was there. And what everybody said. It's just the way alcohol affects Al-Anon. Don't know what it is. So anyway, the good sergeant went downtown, came back home, and he said he had to go to the farm, which was where they sent uh, policemen that are drug addicts, wife abusers, whatever. They send them all to the same place. Okay. So when I handed him that card, I remember when he came home, he, he was looking out the window, and he had his head between his hands and looking downstairs on the seventh off the seventh floor. And I remembered at that moment, I didn't care whether that man jumped or puked. And I hoped it wasn't the second because I'd have to clean it up. Okay? And if he would have said he wanted to jump, I would have opened the window for him. Okay? That's very sad. You know, sick hurting people say sick hurting things. They don't mean them. They hurt. They hurt. And all they could do is latch back. And at that moment, I didn't know if this man, if I didn't care if this man jumped out the window. It, it just wasn't exciting anymore. I was hurting, and I didn't want to be here anymore. So anyway, he goes to the farm, and that was July of 1974. And the good sergeant this past year celebrated 39 years of recovery. Okay. So he comes in one night about 90 days later and says that, uh, or a few months later, and says that his uh, sponsor, whom by now I didn't like at all because he was keeping him up all night, okay, uh, they said they went to coffee after the uh, meeting and they stayed out to 2 o'clock. I just wasn't getting that drinking coffee thing. So anyway, um, he said I needed to go to Al-Anon and I accompanied him to Al-Anon uh, one September evening on a Monday. It was raining to Van Cortland Park in New York. So I, it said, the, the little sign said, AA upstairs, Al-Anon downstairs. So I went downstairs, followed the laughter and the giggling all the way to the back of uh, the hallway, and there was a group of ladies there. They were the happiest things I had ever seen. Uh, I opened the door. I must have been like a deer in the headlights. One came up and said, how you doing, honey? Is this, is this your first time? Yeah. See? Uh, the other one came up says, do you want coffee, honey? Sit here. Sit by me. She was to become my first sponsor. So I sat, and the meeting started, and it was, I will never forget my first Al-Anon meeting like all of us will always remember our first Al-Anon meeting. I could tell you where people were sitting, what they were wearing, and what they said, which was most important. This lady started the meeting, and she said, well, I used to plan to do the old man off. I planned on how I would kill him, stuff the body in the back of the car, take him and throw him off the Whitestone Bridge, and then run home and I'd practice in the mirror looks of surprise for when the cops came to the jail. <laughs> and the next lady said that she had the pallbearers picked out. Serious women. And the next one says she had an outfit. 
Okay. I was home. I had the Jackie O look with the veil, you know. Now, he was a cop, and if they did him in, I was going to be on television, I was going to look good. You know, that's all. So, so anyway, uh, we started Al-Anon in AA, and I started working with this lady. I never asked her how long she had been there. I didn't care. She just said, I'll be your Al-Anon sponsor. Call me in the morning, and that's how we did it. And we were big book Al-Anon. We had the big book. We had the dilemma of the alcoholic marriage. We had the old dad. We didn't have a lot in those days. And we did the fourth step was the AA fourth step. I was told that I had to go to open AA meetings, and that was a must. And I had to go to at least one every every week, and I would accompany my husband to open AA meetings, and that's all there was to it. You didn't argue. You just said, yes, ma'am. And that's how it was. So we continued to do this for a while. A few months later, that nice um, doorman came up and told us that um, we needed to move from the building because we were not safe, that um, irate neighbor had filed a report against my husband and the police department, but they couldn't find one because the old, good old New York Police Department, NYPD, they took care of their boys. That night never happened. Okay, so they were very upset, and within a week I had us packed and out of the city. He went to work one morning and came home to upstate New York. That's the way it was done, okay? So now I have a new family in Monroe, New York, and um, I have a new sponsor, although the first sponsor I had, I talked to her for 15 years, so she died. That's just the way we did things. So I started uh, in Monroe, New York. We got pushed into service because that's also what we did. And I was a GR. Now I am, I think, about 26, 27 years old. I'm a DR because service is what we did. And then by a freak moment, I was at the assembly, and the DRs did not want the chairmanship. And when they said, do we have any volunteers, we were all standing there, and everybody stepped back, and there I was. <laughs> So I was, I was a chairman of the state assembly panel 18. Okay. That's a long time ago. Okay. So anyway, we're doing uh, service there. We are working our program. We're working the steps. I have a wonderful new sponsor that she was like a drill sergeant. And I remember one day she was a snowbird and she would come back, go for four months and come back. And I had lost some weight just before she left. I was, I was doing good because I had you know, eating your problems, you gain a lot of weight. And she came back from her Florida vacation, and she took, like, one look at me, and she says, So, what's going on here? (laughs) And I said, Well, I gained back a few pounds, and she says, What does it say in that step 12? Read it. How does it end? We practice these principles in all our affairs. I'm taking you somewhere. That afternoon, I went to another 12-step program for my overeating, which I'm still a member of today. I was 230 pounds, okay? By the grace of God and the working of these 12 steps in all our affairs, I stand before you today pretty healthy. And cute, too. (laughs) 
So a little while after that, uh, we had to move again. The good sergeant was getting ready to retire, and we moved to uh, Mount Kisco, Bedford Hill area. Now, I have to find a group to be a rep for. I have to find a group that I could be a DR for, and I have to find, you know, just stuff that will get me going because otherwise I'm going to have to give up my chairmanship. So I called my sponsor and I said, everybody has a GR, and the group, the um, district is non-existent. Something happened. It's just not functioning. She says, well, I'll tell you what. Go up and see Lois uh, W. And I said for a moment, I said, okay, Lois W. I know her. Okay, I know that name. <laughs> so... So she says, you know, Lois, go see her. She said, doll, I lived like 10 minutes from Stepping Stones in Bedford Hills, New York. So, you know, youth is youth and ignorance is bliss. So I get up the next morning and I drive over and I'm finding the house. I make a left turn uh, onto Katona Avenue and then I make another turn and there's nothing but a little sign that says the Wilsons. So I turned into there, and over the mound, I could see the house, and it was pretty, lots of flowers all around. And I had I had heard Lois, and I had seen her from afar, but I had never seen her up close and personal. So the, the first time I saw her closer was at a World Service conference at the Hilton Hotel, I believe it was, in New York. And we were having a meeting, and... She came in through the back door with a delegation from the World Service office. They worked. They couldn't let her go anywhere alone because, you know, people would mob her. So she sat in the back with the people, and somebody spotted her. And, of course, the whispers start, there's Lois. Did you see her? There's Lois. And, of course, people are turning around. And then somebody stands up and starts clapping on one end of the room. And then everybody gets up. And then all of a sudden you have applause that build like a bonfire for this woman. And finally she gets up and she waves to us and they go back out the door. And, you know, the commotion, people are crying and things like that. And the young man goes up to the microphone and says, ladies and gentlemen, Lois has left the building. <laughs> I know that people acquaint that with Elvis Presley, but that was said about Lois. So anyway, I'm, I'm there, I'm in, in front of her house, so I knock out the door, and the door opens, and there's Lois herself, Lois Wilson. And um, she invited me in. I think I said something like, hi, Jenny, I'm Lois, or something like that. <laughs> and, and she said, well, honey, why don't you come in and get a load off? So I came in, and Lois herself gave me a tour of Stepping Stones and the Wilson household. Uh, I met um, Harriet, the cook. We had cake that day, so I know it was in March because it was leftover birthday cake. Uh, she took me through the whole place. She took me upstairs, the clearinghouse, where, you know, our numbers first started to gather. The letters all went there, and uh, they did all the paperwork. And um, she took me outside, and I saw Bill's office that was built outside from the garage. And we came back in, and we had a lovely, lovely conversation that day. And I explained my plight, that I had to find a group and all that stuff. And she said, well, honey, why don't you just start a group, and you be the rep until other people come. And I looked at this woman and said, 
could I do that? <laughs> and she says, yes, we have a new group. There's two of us. You just volunteered. It's done. <laughs> so um, that was to be the first of many visits to to uh, Stepping Stones and to the Wilson household. She was a lovely, lovely lady. It was an honor to have known her and Harriet, the housekeeper who went to work for them after she closed her her um, little restaurant. She made the best fried chicken. I got to eat some of that. And that was the first of many visits to uh, Stepping Stones and this lovely, lovely household. Lois and I had a lot in common, by the way. You may not tell it by looking at me, but we both lived in Brooklyn. We both liked to sew. We made our own curtains. You know, it was just, that's what meshed us together, and we got to talk. One night I had had a fight with the alcoholic or the dry person, and um, it was about 10 o'clock at night, and I remember leaving our apartment I remember I had such rage in me, which was one of my issues. I grabbed the portrait that was on the wall. It's like in one quick swoof. You know, you're walking out the door, you're grabbing things, throwing things. And I remember taking that wedding portrait and putting it up against my knee and just smashing it. And I went over to Lois's. I drove over that night, knocked at the door about 10, and I was shaking. I was so angry. And she says, well, honey, why don't you just come in and we'll talk? That night I slept on the couch at Stepping Stones in her house, and I got up about 6.30 the next morning and went home. And, that, you know, that's – I didn't know I was there till somebody told me I had been there, you know. I was – 26, 27 years old, maybe 28. So it's like you're part of history there, but you don't know it. You know, so now you look back and you see all this history and you say, my Lord, I was there. Okay. So about that time, we were putting together a state convention for the, for our 34th assembly district. And I was part of the speaker committee, Seekers. Now, we didn't have CDs. We didn't have tapes. You know, it was all word of mouth. So I go over to Lois because some people said, now, you know, Lois, you're good friends. I was as good a friend as anybody that came to the door. We were not bosom buddies, but I had the connection. So uh, I had a few names on the list. And I go over to Lois, and I remember my husband being a brat had said to me, well, for the AA speaker, why don't you um, try to get Marty Mann? She's still alive. And I didn't know who Marty Mann was. You know, women suffer too. She's credited being the first female alcoholic in the alcoholic organization. She's in the big book. Marty Mann, I didn't know whom this was. This is her picture right up here. Okay, so I go over to Lois and I said to her, you know, we're having a conference. We would love for you to be the speaker. And she said that she couldn't do it because then she'd have to do it for everybody. She was in her 80s. And I showed her my list. She said, okay, who's next on the list? And I said, well, this Miss Marty Mann. And and what chances do you think I have of getting her to come speak? And she's, well, why don't you call her and tell her that I said to be a dear and do this for you? Okay? So I call Miss Marty Mann, 
And I said to her whom I was, blah, 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 and what my mission was. And I said, oh, and I have a message. Lois said to be a dear and do this if you can. Okay. So she says, well, I will have to refer or consult my date book. So she goes into her date book, and she said the only way she could do this was if we moved the dinner from 7 to 6. And I said, I'm sure we could do this. And after a few phone calls back and forth, uh, she was able to come be our speaker at Lady Cliff College that year in August. And one warm Saturday evening, I waited outside the doors for Miss Marty Mann to arrive. Now, up drives a black limo. Nobody gave me heads up on this. So here comes the black limo. They told me our speaker was here, and I go, and I open the door. And I gave her my arm. She was a little frail and um, walked her in. Before I got her into the, the doors, the double doors, she says, now, when it's 45 minutes, you have to signal me because you know us alcoholics will speak all night. And she had an engagement back in the city at 9 o'clock. So I brought her in and handed her over to this gentleman who escorted her the rest of the way. As this woman walked through this room, people just got up and applauded. They just got up and applauded before she got to the podium. So needless to say, she's speaking, and it's 45 minutes. I didn't know what signal to use. She didn't give me a signal. <laughs> so so I'm standing there. I look at the watch, and I go. <laughs> People were in horror. She told me to do it. I tried in my defense. You cut off Marty, man. Do you know what you have done? She told me to do this. So later we actually had to make an announcement that she told me to cut her off because she had to be in town because people, things didn't go well for me the rest of the night, okay? So actually that was in 1979 and Miss uh, Mann died a year later in in August, um, uh, July 22nd of 1980, actually she passed on. So it's about uh, 1985, we were moving, actually before that we were moving in 80, we were moving to Florida. And I called Lois and I said to Lois that we were going to move and I wanted to say my goodbyes. She invited me up to lunch. And there was a lovely lunch of uh, Harriet's fried chicken up there when I arrived. And we talked for a while. Then she handed me a beautiful book, copy of Lois Remembers. And she put a beautiful writing in. And a couple of years ago, I donated that to the Al-Anon archives in Little Rock because that's where it belonged. Okay. So it's 1985, and I want out of this marriage. Nothing has changed. The verbal abuse is still there, and it's gotten worse. And now that he's sober, I expected that it would be better. But the abuse is horrible. There are three kids in the mix now, and I have become a very abusive parent. My mouth was always going. And um, I remember saying to my sponsor, I need to get out, but he won't leave. Whenever I asked him to leave, he said that I could leave, but the children had to stay. 
Okay, He would not let the children go, which is the same thing he would tell me in New York City. The only thing he was still working when we were in New York City, and I listened to him then because he would say things like, if you leave and you take my children, I'll have you arrested for kidnapping. We'll throw you in jail, and we'll throw away the key. And you believe that because, you know, that NYPD, they took care of their own. So I waited to 1985 till he was out of the police department and we lived down in Florida. And after talking to my sponsor and my spiritual advisor and I was going crazy and I didn't trust myself, the last time I had my hands on the police sergeant, uh, he had moved into our daughter's room and I remember the rage in me was so, so bad that I grabbed him by the hair and I shook him against the pillow. That's how angry I was. I was being abusive myself at that time, and it scared me. It scared me that I could actually hurt one of my children this way because I was such an angry human being at that time. I was an angry person. I was still going to Al-Anon. I was still in service. I've always done service, but I was in pieces like Humpty Dumpty who fell off the wall and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. Those were my insights. That's what I was feeling like. So I had a nice sponsor, and we talked this out, and I left. I left the alcoholic with the three children, and I told the children that I was moving and I was leaving, but I wasn't leaving them. My children were in the first grade, the fifth grade, and the seventh grade. And I had to walk because I was a danger to myself and I was a danger to my children. And I had to go to counseling for about three years after that. If you think it's easy walking out of a home and leaving your children, first of all, nice Catholic girls don't do that. The first backlash I got was at my church. I went to church no matter what. But one day I was approached at the church and I was told that I wasn't a nice person and that uh, they were ashamed of me and that I was disgusting for leaving my children. This was my base. This was my spiritual base, and this fell apart. So I had to find another church, and uh, now I was in the sing- uh, single scene, and um, I was a wild person. Uh, you you know, you look at me now, it's a l- lord. You, you, you can't believe that this was a wild person, but yes, she was. <laughs> Stayed up till all hours of the night, stated people that made the alcoholic look good. <laughs> Gee whiz. So anyway, um, I went one day to a dance at an Alano club. My sponsor had said not to go, but I went. And, um, oh, gee whiz. I was with three women that were sicker than I could ever be, and I was sick at that time. Okay, the Alano club, and it's good to go to dances at the Alano club if you can handle it. I was not prepared for this. They were shipping guys in from the rehab in buses, okay? These guys were shaking as they walked out of the bus, okay? These two women were arguing over one of these drunks. I was still shaking because she had talked to him the week before, okay? I turned and I ran home. I didn't walk, okay? Called my sponsor and she said, I told you you shouldn't do that. So, okay. Let about a month go by, I met a dream boat. Woo! Talk about 
cute, cute, bodybuilder, the whole thing, dreamboat. She said, don't do it. Don't go out with him. I did. Three o'clock in the morning, I call my sponsor. Are you bleeding? No. Are you hurt? No. Okay. Call me back in the morning after nine. We'll talk. It was the longest walk and the longest, you know, wait of my life. So I call her about nine o'clock in the morning and she says, okay, these are the rules. If you want me to continue to be your sponsor, you can't date for two years. You cannot be in a room alone with a man unless there's somebody else there to witness the conversation. That's it. One night I had a repairman come to my door. And I said, hold on a minute. I called Joan. I said, there's a repairman that has to come in. She says, okay, you leave me when the repairman, you call me when the repairman leaves. I said, Joan, he must be a 100 years old. So was Abraham. You call me when. (laughs) So by now, my sponsor's name was behind her back. She that must be obeyed. So I said, yes to she that must be obeyed. And I, you know, called her when the repairman left. Oh, gosh. I was that bad, yes. (laughs) So anyway, a little while into this mourning period for me, she had told me I had to go to the library. I had to look into schools, and I had to look into what made me tick. Because at this point, I didn't know who I was. If I was dating someone and they liked scrambled eggs, I like scrambled eggs, you know. I was this thing, chameleon, that could become anything anybody else was except whom I was supposed to be. So I followed the instructions. I went to the library. We made a bucket list before I thought I knew about a bucket list. One of the things on there was my dream to become a flight attendant. I wanted to be an interior decorator, a doctor, an astronaut, and all that stuff. Um, So anyway, a little while into this, I went over to McDill Air Force Base to this dance. She said I could go because there were more than 100 people there. Okay, so I went to this dance at McDill Air Force Base, and you know, we are like heat-seeking missiles, you know? 300 in the room, and then there's that one. Comes towards me, not the John Wayne walk, but sort of walking sideways because of his medals. Lieutenant Colonel. Lieutenant Colonel, I am stepping up in the world, the most beautiful second thing that I had seen in my life. So he got to talking. He wanted to go to dinner. And I said, could you hold that thought? And I ran to call she that must be obeyed. Okay. So, well, hi, Jenny. How are you? Well, how long has it been? A year and ten months, ma'am. You always called her ma'am. So why are we having this conversation? (laughs) Click, and that was it. So I'm happy to tell you that I went back and explained to the nice colonel that I had this thing going on and I couldn't date for two months, and he waited, and now we've been together 20 years. Okay? So, by the way, that's how we're related. So uh, now I had to do a new fourth step about this time, you know. Um, 
I was in such bad shape just before this sponsor got a hold of me that one day I was sitting at the train tracks with the train coming blowing the whistle because I was so sick and tired of being sick and tired and I don't drink. I didn't want this life, that I just wanted it to end. So the whistle is blowing and the train is getting closer and I don't know what pushed me other than a very, very heavy wind or a higher power whom I choose to call God. So I went to a meeting that night and I remember telling the people that I just wanted to crash into the first tree. People followed me home. They called me for a month. People came and took me to meetings, okay, because that's how bad it was, okay. And uh, life wasn't good. Life wasn't good at that time. I um, sat down and did this fourth step, and I went with her, and we were going to do the fifth step, and I started talking about how great life was, you know, that denial. And Things are great, man. I've looked over things. I know what I'm not going to do again. Things are great. I can't wait to get this finished. I am happy. Blah, 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 blah. I looked at her that must be obeyed, and she says, blah, 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 blah. She says, Jenny, you can't be okay. Your church has turned their back on you. People have told you that disgusting. Your life is a train wreck. You left your children after 16 and a half years of marriage with the alcoholic. How could your life be okay? So anyway, she sent me off. By the way, she took that fourth step that was to become the fifth step, and she threw it in the garbage. That's how it was with some sponsors, and some sponsors think, I'm a little hard. Well, this is where I learned. Uh, so anyway, I went ahead and I did another fourth step and we um, have sat down to do a fifth. You know, I have had seasons in my life that were absolutely terrible due to terrible decisions that I made through uninformed and unrealistic choices. As a young girl, I was abused by my mother. Um, she had four kids by the time she was 18. This wasn't her fault, you know. It was the way it was. She was angry, and she took that anger out of me. It was nothing to find myself being pulled across the floor by my hair or being slapped around just because someone said I was loud. It wasn't her fault. And through Al-Anon, I've learned to forgive those things. I still had the little nightmares, but... You know, learn to let go of a lot of all, all those things. Um, anger and disappointment, that was, that's what I was about. I was so disappointed about life and my spiritual life at that time was non-existence, even though I grew up in the church. But my sponsor at that time, having such a savvy and an insight, introduced me to Kathy, who was to become my spiritual sponsor. And Kathy took me to this place in a new dimension, and she introduced me to a higher power whom she called God, and I choose to call God because he's conference approved and his son is not. <laughs> so this was like um, stepping through 
these doors, like when you step into Walmart and the doors open, this is what happened to me at this point in my life. It was like I stepped into another dimension, and I had this woman explaining to me about this love for a God that she had that was unshakable, what this God had done for her in her life and for her family and how her life from now on was just to serve and to help people. Let me tell you a little bit of background about Kathy, the spiritual sponsor that I had. She had been a two-bit hooker for most of her life. She um, escaped after her pimp knocked out her teeth, so she had dentures. She had been like 400 pounds at one time. And right now, when you, right then, when you looked at her, she was the most beautiful specimen of a woman. The peace that she had in her face, and when she spoke to you, the kindness that was with her, okay? And I went, wow, if this higher power, whom you choose to call God, could do this for you, wow. And here I am with a love for a higher power that's undeniable. In another year, I should get my um, my degree as a ministerial pastor from Rama Bible College. And that started, the root of that started with this woman that had been a hooker, a two-bit hooker in her life, but straightened out her life. So the miracles just keep coming. Um on the eighth and ninth step, I learned that my Paul, uh, my friend Paul says that, you know, forgetting what is behind you, keep your eyes on the price. I was told to picture someone that had loving kindness. I thought of Kathy. But then I thought of another woman that expressed what kindness and love was and forgiveness. I had met this woman back in 1969 in the garment industry. And she had been um, a rescue from the concentration camp. And she lost her whole family. And you would have never known her because she walked in such kindness and forgiveness. When this woman entered and left the room, you know she had been there. And she spoke of such kindness. She had become a Christian through a Christian family that adopted her when she came to the States. And I remembered Etta. And I tried to remember how Etta walked and how Etta talked so I could get that same thing, okay? Because I didn't know what acting as if was, so I had to get a picture in my mind, okay? Then about that time, I met Sandy. Sandy is now gone. We lost her about 10 years ago. But Sandy used to work for a collection agency, and Sandy said that when people were unable to pay their debt, they would take the file and they would say, cancel, unable to pay, So I started to look at all those debts that I had spiritually that I thought people owed me and the debts that I thought I owed people on forgiveness, and I started to stamp those canceled by the grace of God. And that was good. That was good because that took all that wreckage of the past and just put it in that ocean of forgiveness never to be brought up again. God, I have learned, will never bring that stuff up. Only you bring it up. Okay. 
I have learned in this program not to miss those living amends. I have uh, some beautiful children. My daughter was about 19 then, and she was living in the Bronx with my sister, taking care of her children. I don't know what happened one night, but... Two o'clock in the morning, I get a call from her, and she's out in the city, in the Bronx, where I grew up, and she called me and said she was hysterical. She never said what happened. She was in a phone booth on the corner, one of the worst places that I know exists, and she said she was trying to find Grandma's house because something had happened and she needed some help. So I told my daughter my blood is sitting over 3,000 miles away, and I said, just get down on the floor, I'll call Grandma. So I called Grandma at that time, I said, just go get her for me, go get her. And um, she went and got her, and I said, just call me when you have her in the apartment. So my daughter calls about 20 minutes later, and she's sort of giggling, she says, Mom, you should have seen Grandma. She had her coat over her pajamas, and she had that big machete under it. <laughs> you know, I told you my childhood was nothing to write home about. But that night, those feelings of insecurity, of hatred, left me. If that wasn't a living amends by my mother to go out at 2 o'clock in the morning this old woman to rescue her granddaughter, I don't know what is. Sometimes the living amends could be something like asking your brother-in-law to host you at an Al-Anon event, to say, I'm sorry for throwing you over the under the bus, <laughs> but I'm so proud of you. And besides, one day if he's mayor of this great city, he could fix my parking tickets. <laughs> Doing service, as I said, is, is one of the greatest pleasures that I have, whether it's putting on a convention, Al-Anon Summertime in the Ozarks is held right here in August, and we started that a few years ago. We hope a bunch of you come back to help us out with that. I was in Florida one day. This is on doing service, and um, this is one of the loveliest lessons I've learned. I would go into Turner Street, to the Alano Club, and I would go in first thing in the morning, and I would turn on the coffee. And I turn on the AA coffee. Mm. No, no. And then I do the Alanon coffee, and I did this for about six months. And this one day, I think somebody was watching out for whom this was that was making the coffee, and this woman comes out and says, Are you in AA? I said, No, ma'am, I'm in Alanon. She says, What are you doing making our coffee? the old crow, and I, <laughs> and I said, well, I've been doing it for six months, that's the service, she says, don't touch our coffee pot, don't touch our coffee, as a matter of fact, don't even step into our kitchen, <laughs> and I, and I called my sponsor, and we talked about it, I was heard, it was like, do you know whom you're talking to, I knew Lois, I knew Marty Mann, I, you know, <laughs> do you, so anyway, my sponsor arranges a, a meeting, and the next week she says, well, come sit in the kitchen and we'll talk about this. I was hurt. My feelings were all over the place. I mean, I've been making the coffee. So we're sitting down, my sponsor, the person, and myself, 
And I, from the eye view, the corner, there's this large man, and he's trying to put the coffee. First he puts in the filter, and then he's got the filter in the sleeve. Then he's trying to put in the coffee, and it's going all over the place. And I'm going, yeah. So <laughs> then he finally gets the this sleeve, and he brings it over, and there's coffee grains all over the counter, you know. Doesn't even know how to make coffee. So he he has this all done, which was a tremendous effort. He was a very large man. Then he, before he sits down, he wipes off the counter, then he sits down, okay. I'm watching him. I know the old crow and my sponsor, him, she that must be obeyed, is watching me. They are so devious, okay? So the man sits down, wipes the brow of his head, because this was real hard work. <laughs> and then a gentleman comes in and talks to him. And this large man gets up and says, I made the coffee, boss. That was that alcoholic from the street. That was his first step back in society to make that coffee. So after it was done, I went over to him and I said, that was the best cup of coffee I've ever had. I know what went into it. I never touched the coffee pot again. And I went over to apologize to the ladies because that was their job and that was service for the AA to do. And to this day, I don't touch the coffee pot in the AA room. Okay. <laughs> this, <laughs> I have witnessed a lot of miracles in this program. One of the greatest miracles I witnessed was back on Turner Street. And on Fridays at the Alano Club, they used to um, sell tickets for a big book. And the idea was that if you want a big book, you pass it on to someone that was new. So I won a big book this night, and at the end of the meeting, they asked if anybody was interested in their way of life. And this group had like 200 people on the Friday night, turn the street in Clearwater, Florida. Jane's been there, our speaker from last night. So they ask who who wants this way of life, and this gentleman walks down. I could smell him before he got to me because he stunk like rotten eggs. He passed me by. His hair was matted. He was filthy. His clothes was filthy, and he stunk. He gets up to the front, and the man has to hold his hand to put the chip in because he's shaking so much. And as he passed back towards me, I handed him the book. And I was there 30 days later when he was a little cleaner and got his 30-day chip. I was there a year later. I was there five years later. And I had the honor to be there when that young man stepped up with his wife and his newborn baby to accept his 10-year chip. Okay. And he would always say the same thing. I don't know who gave me this book, if you were a man or a woman, but thank you. You know? Talk about anonymous. <laughs> well, I'm going to wrap it up here by telling you that um, I have had some 
you know, <laughs> unbelievable times. In, in the year 1999 or so, I went back and got my wings with an airline company, and I became a flight attendant after waiting for 30 years. And I might have a little time to tell you about my my airline story. Okay, so I go and try out for this airline after I had met one of the gals, and um, she says they're asking for older women now, so you have a good chance. So I talked to my sponsor. She that must be obeyed. You did not go on the job interview without her. So she talked me through this, and um, we actually drove together to this interview. I get there, and it's like a cattle call. There's 300 people applying for 50 seats. So anyway, we went through this. They had fudged my resume because I was so good on this resume. You know, I was it. If they didn't hire me, they were going to lose out, you know, according to this resume. Uh, So anyway, to make a long story short, I did get one of those seats, and I went into training with Southeast Airlines. They were a private charter company that did um, special government offices like the White House Press Corps and all. They handled all that. They had beautiful planes. So I went into training, and I started to fly. I didn't care where they sent me. Didn't care where they sent me. I was flying. I had waiting. I had waited 30 years. Coffee, tea, or me was the, you know, just... <laughs> I look great in the uniform, you know, the whole thing. So anyway, I started to do the regular flights from state to state, and then I had charter flights. I lived in the Bahamas for six months, right on the water. Uh, we did celebrities, baseball uh, teams, uh, basketball teams. Um, it was wonderful. I had a wonderful time. And then they take me off of these runs and they put me on regular runs and uh, going from like um, Florida to New York and stuff like that. And I meet Miss Babs. Up to now, I have had an awesome time on these charters. We had cushion seats, we had the TVs, we had the Lazy Boy chairs, and now I'm on the DC-10 where you could smell the bathroom that smelled like a latrine. But anyway, here was Miss Babs. I meet Miss Babs. She was the flight attendant from H-E-L-L. She didn't like me. She didn't like the moment I stepped on her plane. She didn't like the way my uniform looked. She didn't like the way my hair looked, and she didn't like the way I said coffee. She didn't make me uh, let me make announcements because I didn't sound look, and she wanted to teach me how to speak properly before I could use the announcements. If somebody gave me a compliment, she'd give me two things that I did wrong. Finally, Miss Babs had had enough of me, and she said that I was being transferred to another line because, you know, she had this special team she was gathering together, and she was training them to go for the top top job, which was the White House Press Corps. So the next day, I'm off to Jersey. Jersey is the pit of the hubs, okay? There is nothing good about going to a hub in Jersey. It is bad, and it is smelly. So, but I was still flying. So anyway, I had talked to my captain, and he said, Jenny, it'll be okay. Come with me. It'll be fun. You know me. You'll be the oldest one there, so you'll be lead flight attendant, even if it smells like a latrine bucket. It'll be okay. Make it your own. So I go on this uh, new DC-10. I call my sponsor, tell her how unhappy I am, 
And she said, well, okay, let's take an inventory. She was about taking inventories. Let's take an inventory of the situation. You're lead, right? So you could just decorate the plane. I don't know. So I said, but I said, Joan, they serve wine out of these pea specimen cups. It is disgusting. So she says, well, what could we do about that? So we went to the dollar store and we bought wine glasses, okay? There's always something that you can make better, she said. If it's not broke, if it's if it's not broke, don't fix it, but you could see how you can make it better, okay? So we bought napkins and all that stuff, and because I didn't have to take uniforms, I could get, okay, knives and spoons and forks and wine glasses and napkins I carried in my luggage off and on the plane, okay? So I get this one day, and I'm I'm serving it up beautiful. I made the first five rows first class because she said, do whatever you want. So in my mind, they were first class. It still smelled like a latrine, but I tried to spray it, and it was first class. So, <laughs> so anyway, on comes the VP of the company, and I go over and I bring him his wine in the wine glass with a napkin, two cherries, two pieces of cheese on a little saucer. And he says, where did this come from? And I said, from my house, I refuse to serve wine out of a pica. <laughs> he smiled, didn't see him the rest of the flight. Next day I get a call, do not return to your flight. I said, oh my gosh. I am to return to headquarters, and I said, I am being fired off of Jersey. My God, there is no way. <laughs> this is Jersey. There's nowhere lower to go. It's Jersey. So, so I go in at old 800. I make sure I look good. My buttons were polished, the whole thing. And I walk in. My flight director's coming, and, you know, they walk fast. She says, Walk with me. And she's talking to me. Do you realize the VIP, the VP of the company was on your flight last night? Yes, ma'am. He said he liked your style report for training for the corporate airplane. <laughs> so I went out that morning to train for the corporate airplane. And then within two months, I was serving on the White House, uh, on the other plane with the White House press corps. And then within six months, the lead flight attendant got pregnant. She had to leave. I was the next one in line, and I became the lead flight attendant for the White House press corps. The job, Miss Babs wanted. So here I am. I'm flying all over the country. We take off right before Air Force One because we need to journal everything. So I have a detail. I have a... Uh, Secret Service detail with me. The kid from the Bronx has the Secret Service detail. So he would do anything. John would do anything. And I said to John, I wanted to get up close to the president, if I could, to hear him. He got us into a hangar. That was nice. I was four people away from the president. It was me, the Secret Service, and the sign language person, and another Secret Service person. And I said, well... Do you think I could get close enough so I could wave him and he could see me? And she, and he says, Juanita, that's my actual name, um, I will try, but you need a clearance to do that. So anyway, 
the next uh, time we were wheels down in Dallas, everybody had to be off of the plane and on the tarmac when Air Force One arrived and the doors opened. So we get up. I'm in the back. I'm in my apron still cleaning up. And he says, Juanita, get over here. Stop. Get here right now. I thought I had done something wrong. I stepped out of the doors of the aircraft, the forward doors, and right then, Air Force One, the doors opened, the President of the United States stepped forward, turned towards us because there was nothing behind us, and waved to me. Okay. <laughs> so I have now lived about 64 and a half years. I'll be 65 this November. I love what it said in the big book and the five-time loser wins. They took it out. It's a third edition. It says that the 12 steps are designed to kill the old self, defeat the old eagle, and build a new life. There is nowhere to go but up, 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 as my friend would say. I like to end with these words that... My friend who passed on about two years ago and is still very much in my heart used to say, he used to say, great it is to dream a dream when you stand in youth by the starry stream, but greater still is to fight life through and say at the end the dream was true. Thank you and God bless you. We're enough I can clear the tears out and see.